let's pray as we enter God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. And Lord, we know that you want to speak to us through it, even in a very challenging portion. We pray that this morning, by your Holy Spirit, anoint your word, speak through me, your servant, give us understanding of how great a God you truly are. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I'm going to begin this morning by asking you some tricky questions. Some tricky questions. Let's see if you can answer these. Question one. Why do they make toasters with settings so high that it's guaranteed to burn your toast? Does anyone know? Why do they make toasters like that? What do you do when you see an endangered animal eating an endangered plant? What do you do? Uh, Is there another word for synonym? Anyone know that one? Any English teachers out there know the answer? Here's another one for you. Why are stairs called stairs when they're inside, but steps when they're outside? You ever thought about that? Why is that? If the police arrest a mime, do they still tell him he has the right to remain silent? Would a fly without wings be called a walk? Why is the person who invests your money called a broker? And what was the best thing before sliced bread? If canola oil is made from canola and olive oil is made from olives, then what is baby oil made from? Why is the absolute slowest time to travel called rush hour? Anyone thought about that? Why? Why don't you ever see the headlines, Psychic Wins the Lottery? You ever seen that headline? I haven't. Why don't we? And finally, if you try to fail but succeed in failing, which one have you actually done? Did you succeed to fail or did you fail to succeed? You thought about that one? Now, if you got a bit of a deer in the headlights look and maybe some smoke coming out of your ears at this point, now you have a picture of me this entire week studying this passage. Because the fact is that just as life is full of tricky questions that are very, very often difficult, if not impossible, to answer, so too is today's section a very complex biblical theology that Paul dives into. For today we are returning to our ongoing series through the book of Romans, and we come now to chapter 9, and what most biblical scholars consider to be one of the most challenging passages in all of Scripture to interpret, let alone to teach. And the reason it's so challenging is because it deals directly with God's sovereignty over all of his creation and God's freedom of choice. We often talk about man's freedom of choice, but this is looking at God from from his perspective, that God has the freedom of choice to choose whatever he wills according to his will. And he has complete freedom over all of us, all of his creation, and every last one of us, to do with us exactly as he sees fit to do. Now, before we go any further, it will be helpful for us as we sort of frame our text this morning by answering the question, what is it that we mean when we say that God is sovereign? So we often hear that term, we often say God is sovereign, but what exactly do we mean when we say that? Well, the word sovereign is best understood 
as two words combined, almost a hyphenated word. So if you put a line through the middle of it, we have sov and rain, sov and rain. So the word rain, R-E-I-G-N, rain, is what a king does over his kingdom. The king reigns over his kingdom. Now, the word sov, S-O-V, means alone. So when you put them together, it means alone reign or reign alone. So when we say that God is sovereign, it means that he is reigning alone. God is reigning over his kingdom as sovereign king. There is no other king. There is no other, uh, other peer beside him. God reigns over his kingdom alone. Therefore, he is completely free to do or decide whatever he desires to do or decide without needing to consult you or me or anyone else for that matter. God has no advisors. God needs no advisors. Furthermore, it also means that when God does something, he is not required to explain himself or his actions to anyone. And yet, oftentimes, that's exactly what we want. God, explain yourself. And in fact, we see examples of this throughout Scripture where men sought explanations from God, including most famously Job, who spent chapters asking God, why, why, why have you allowed this to happen to me? What have I done? And at the end of it, we see God answering Job from the cloud, from the windstorm, and he says, who are you to question me, your creator? And then he proceeds to bombard him with unanswerable questions for two chapters. Where were you when I created and created and all of this? Where were you, Job? And at the end, Job receives no answer other than who are you to question me, and he humbles himself before God. And so we must remember that when God does choose to answer himself or explain himself to us, it's not because he owes us an explanation. It's because he is merciful and gracious, and often he chooses to explain things to us to help us understand his ways. But we must always remember that God's ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, our call to worship this morning, Isaiah explains this to us as it was revealed to him from the Lord. Through him the Lord said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now how high and and how wide is the gulf between the heavens and the earth? Is there a measurement you want to put on it? Is Is there years? Is there light years? Parsecs? You know, space, the heavens is vast. And God says, however vast that void is, that's how far the divide is between my thoughts and my ways and your thoughts and your ways. So we got to remember, we're on terra firma. We're on earth and we're trying to shoot way up into the heavens right now as we try to understand a little bit more of God's thoughts and ways. And so as we enter this holy ground of considering God's sovereignty today, let us humbly remember this, that as we do so, we are not God's equals. Rather, we must come to this text and come before our great God and remember humbly that we are the created, he is the creator. And so as we consider him, our our great God and creator, we should not be surprised that there are aspects of him that we simply cannot fully comprehend. And so with that as the outset to frame our discussion this morning, our study this morning, please turn with me to Romans chapter 9 if you have not yet done so. 
Now, as you turn there to Romans chapter 9, remember that the early church in Rome was made up not just of Gentiles, but also of newly converted Jewish believers. And so the, the Jews had already traveled throughout the Roman Empire. Many of them had settled in Rome, and many of them had heard the gospel and had believed. And so in this church setting, whenever the first time was that this, that this letter was received and was now being read to the assembly, we can well picture those early Jewish believers hearing this whole message, the scope of the gospel, and in the back of their minds are wondering this. What about the Jews? What about Israel? Aren't we still God's chosen people? Haven't we been the center of God's work on earth for thousands of years? What about all of God's promises to bring salvation to Israel? Did the Jews' rejection of Jesus mean that God's word had somehow failed? And to these questions, in Romans chapter 9, we see that Paul anticipates these sort of tricky questions, along with a few more, and now he begins to answer each one in turn using three historical examples from the Old Testament. And so this is where we begin our study in verse 6, with tricky question number one, has God failed to keep his word? Had all of God's promises to Israel failed because they had failed to believe in their Messiah? And so, right in the outset, Paul answers this question. Verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now, that's Isaac as opposed to Ishmael, or one of the other sons of Abraham. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Now, what Paul is saying here, I'll just try to boil it right down for you. What Paul is saying is that simply because the physical nation of Israel had been cut off because of the rejection of their Messiah, the physical descendants of Abraham, they had been cut off, that did not mean that God's word had failed. And he then uses the examples of the two sons of Abraham named Ishmael and Isaac to prove his point. Now, if we go way back to Abraham, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the covenant promise that God made to Abraham that he would give him descendants as numerous as the, the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky, and that through him all nations of the earth would be blessed. But there's only one problem, and the problem is this. Abraham and Sarah were already very old. And on top of that, they had no children. They were barren. So at this point, Abraham is around 75 years old, and he and Sarah have not been able to have children up until this point. And so we know that naturally, biologically, that chapter of their life is just gone and closed and they're not going to be having any kids. And yet, despite this fact, they know it to be true, Abraham hears God's word and against all hope, he believes God. And because Abraham believes God, it's credited to him as righteousness and therefore he has ever since been called the father of faith because he believed God to do the impossible. And so, good old Abraham, father of faith, he believed God, good for him. 
and away they go. They're going to have a kid right away, right? No, not so fast. Years go by. Many years go by. Abraham's pushing a hundred. He still hasn't had a kid. Sarah's still barren, and they're only getting older and wrinklier. Okay? I'm sure that's happening. So it happens to everyone. And so, at this point, they're beginning to wonder. They're beginning to wonder, has God forgotten about us? You know, what's taking him so long? Maybe we missed something. Maybe he's waiting on us to do something to help him out. Yeah, that must be it. And so finally, Sarah comes up with a plan. She comes up with a plan. She presents it to Abraham, and he agrees. And what was their plan? Well, they decided that God, yes, he needed their help in order to keep his own word. And so Sarah gives her handmaid, Hagar, to Abraham for him to have a child with her in Sarah's place as a surrogate mother. Now, for us, of course, we hear that and we go, whoa, that's, that's wild, that's crazy. But we've got to remember, in the Middle East and in that time, it was socially acceptable for this to take place. For um, the way it worked, a, a handmaid was, was bonded to Sarah. She was her property. And so for her to bear a child on her mistress's behalf was, was acceptable. And so we've got to remember it through that lens. However, even though in that time and place, that practice or that custom was acceptable or allowed, is that what God had in mind? Was that how God intended to keep his word or his promise? Of course not. Because the promise was stated that Sarah will have a son. Sarah, no one else. It had to come through Sarah. This child would be a miracle. And so, what happens from them trying to help God out to keep his word? Well, they made a mess. They made a real mess. Because Hagar did bear Abraham a son. They named him Ishmael. He was not the son of God's promise. He did not come from Sarah. And so finally, many more years pass. Sarah finally does have that miracle baby. She conceives. She gives birth to Isaac, who is the son of God's promise. But now there's two sons. There's two sons of Abraham. But there's only one covenant promise. So now what? Well, you know how if you turn on the news, there's typically some story about a mess going on in the Middle East? There's typically some story of, of tension, of, of uh, you know, war, or the possibility of war. You hear about attacks constantly. You hear about missile strikes. You hear about terrorist attacks. And not to mention there has been, you know, numerous wars take place in the, in the last number of years, all between Arabs and Jews, Arabs and Israelites. And this mess has gone on for hundreds and thousands of years because Arabs trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham through Ishmael. And likewise, the Israelites trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham through Isaac. And so here we see that both sides of Abraham's family tree lay claim to the land as their birthright. Abraham is our father. And they're both right. And they both want the land, but there's only one land. And so they've been fighting over it ever since. And war and strife and bloodshed. And just think about how many people have suffered and died through the thousands of years, all because Sarah and Abraham thought God needed their help to keep his word. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that wild? When we think that we got to help God out to keep his own word, uh, <laughs> 
we're fooling ourselves and we're going to cause a problem. We're going to cause more issues than we solve. And that's exactly what happened here. Because when God says he's going to do something, he will. His word goes out, it will not return to him void. No matter how long it takes, it will not. And so when he says he's going to do something, he will. And he's going to do it his way. His way and not our way. And so this brings us to the first main application from this text for us. Salvation does not come from our family tree. Salvation does not come from our family tree. Now what do I mean by that? Well, Ishmael was physically the son of Abraham. They can correctly trace their family tree all the way back to him. The the Arab nation can. However, Ishmael was not the son born out of God's promise. And therefore, in a spiritual sense, Ishmael and his descendants are not the children of Abraham. Because spiritually, they are not his descendants. So had God failed to keep his word? Not at all. Because his promise to Abraham was based primarily upon him having spiritual descendants and not only physical ones. So returning now to Paul's day, even though the nation of Israel as the physical descendants of Abraham were being set aside because of the rejection of their Messiah, God's word was still not failing because he was now proceeding to adopt the Gentiles as the new spiritual descendants of Abraham. So while a natural line was was seemingly being cut off, a new branch was growing from the tree, which included the Gentiles. That's all non-Jewish people, which, praise the Lord, you know, that means us. We get grafted into the line of Abraham. We become his descendants, not biologically, not by blood, but by the Spirit of God. We are grafted in. And so now, we become Abraham's spiritual descendants by placing faith in Christ. The promise had not failed. God had promised that through Abraham, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Who could have imagined it would be because every nation on earth could be grafted in to the same promise God had made to Abraham, that I will make you a blessing to all nations. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so now here we are, Canadians, right? Canadians, and yet we are children of Abraham through faith in Christ. We are grafted in. So the promise has not failed. In verse 8, Paul explains further. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children. So it's not, the, it's not the bloodline that matters. It's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And so though Abraham's physical descendants had been set aside for a time, the Jews had been set aside because of unbelief, Abraham's spiritual descendants would carry on and would soon multiply to fill the whole earth, including the nation of Canada, and most certainly God's word has not failed. Now, as an application for us, many of us have what we will call Mennonite last names, right? We, you know, like to, like to throw out our, our Mennonite lineage, and, and of course, all of those last names are only Mennonite if you go back the centuries, because at one point it was people from a whole bunch of nations in Europe who came together, not because of some lineage, but because of a shared faith, right? It was faith that brought the first so-called Mennonites together. And of course, we go all the way back to the Reformation, to Menno Simons, and in those years in between, 
The, the so-called Mennonite family is filled with countless men and women of devout faith who follow Jesus Christ no matter the cost. So the Christian faith has been passed along to us through the generations. However, we know that this passing along of the faith from one generation to the next does not happen by default. It doesn't just happen automatically. An oh-so-common error is the assumption that simply because someone was born into a church, you know, especially in our context, if someone was born into a good church-going Mennonite family, you know, they got such a strong Mennonite last name. You know, that, that just guarantees that that person will also become a Christian and continue to follow Christ their entire life, no matter what. But if that's what you think, my friends, it's wrong. You need to adjust your thinking because that is simply not true. Now, let me be clear, and I, and I don't want to diminish this. Having godly Christian parents is one of the greatest blessings that any person can be given. And I don't want to diminish that in any way because it is one of the, the greatest blessings that you can be, be raised in the faith. It is such a blessing. However, no matter how godly and committed your parents or grandparents may have been to Christ, that does not by default make you a child of God. The fact is, listen to this, you could have a father who's a preacher and a mother who's a Sunday school teacher, and you could still be on your way to hell without Jesus. Those things do not save you. On the other hand, you could have a father who's, who's a drug dealer and a mother who's an alcoholic and be on your way to heaven with Jesus. You see, it's not about your family tree. It's about you. Have you realized that you are a sinner in need of a savior? Have you gone to Jesus in humble repentance of your sin and placed your faith in him alone to save you? That's what matters. You see, my friends, salvation does not hang from your family tree. It hangs on the tree of Jesus Christ, the one he died on to save us from our sins. And so it's a blessing to have a godly heritage. Don't get me wrong. That is absolutely a blessing, but it does not save us alone. We must each decide to go to Christ and be spiritually reborn in order to become children of God. Not born of natural descent, not because my daddy was a preacher, but born again by the Spirit of God. It is the only way. And so now this comes, up, this comes uh, and brings us to our tricky question number two. Is God unjust? Is God unjust? Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Now, this tricky question is based on the second example that Paul uses of Isaac's twin sons, Jacob and Esau. For though both brothers were biological sons of Isaac, you know, they shared a womb together in, you know, in Rebekah's womb, and, and so in every single way they are descendants of Abraham, they are sons of Isaac, and yet, God exercised his sovereign will that even before they were born, and Paul says even before they had done anything good or bad, God had chosen Jacob and not Esau to be the son of the promise who would carry on Abraham's spiritual legacy of faith. And this brings us now to one of the most challenging verses in the entire Bible. 
If you've stumbled across this one before, you know what I'm talking about. It's verse 13, where Paul quotes the prophet Malachi from chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 in Malachi, in which God declared this. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Now, have you read this verse before and kind of gone, whoa, what is this? How do I wrap my head around this? Can you believe that God said he hated Esau? I mean, isn't God love? You know, 1 John, God is love. And didn't Jesus say, for God so loved the world? So how are we to understand this? How do we wrap our heads around the fact that God hated Esau? Well, there's a very strong tension here, and I'm going to let you ponder it for a moment. And as you do, I promise that in just a few moments' time, I'm going to make it as clear as mud for you. All right? That's a promise. (laughs) Now, I've had people tell me, I've had people come up to me about this exact verse. And in fact, sometimes I've had had believers come to me asking about this verse because a non-believer challenged them with it. Well, your Bible says this. What do you make of that? And they're like, oh, I don't know how to answer that. Better go talk to the pastor. So I've had this brought to me a number of times before because they've struggled with this. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, I want to I begin by framing this a different way because we get hung up on the part, well, how could he hate Esau? But let's focus on the other part of the statement. How could God love Jacob? Think about that. How could God love Jacob? Because remember, what we know about Jacob was that he was a deceiver. He was a heel grabber. He was a shyster. He was a con artist. He cleverly conned Esau into selling him his birthright. He later tricked his blind father into blessing him rather than Esau. Later on, there was all sorts of shenanigans between him and Uncle Laban. And and you just look at this guy, and and there's nothing really that lovable about him. You look at his character, and it seems... Less than honorable. So how could God love someone like Jacob? Well, let's ask that another way. How could God love someone like you? Okay, that's a little pointed. I'll put it another way. How could God love someone like me? Right? Because remember where we've come in Romans. For all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. I have And that means you have too, all. Are any of us deserving of God's love? Are any of us more deserving of God's love than Jacob? I think we all know the answer to these questions. None of us are deserving of God's love. None of us. And none of us are more deserving than Jacob. You see, what we deserve, as as Paul has made the case throughout the first half of Romans, is that what we deserve, if God were to be perfectly just, what we deserve is wrath. What we deserve is to be cut off from God and punished in a lake of fire for all of eternity. That is what our sin deserves. And so that is what Esau deserved. That is what Jacob deserved. That is what we all deserve. And so now, listen, to receive anything other than what we deserve is an act of mercy on the part of God. It is an act of mercy. And this is what Paul explains, continuing on, verse 14 and 15. Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. 
and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but upon God's mercy. And so you see, God mercifully chose to show mercy to a deceiver like Jacob, a shyster like him. God chose to show him mercy. And later on, he changed his name to Israel, which means Prince of God. And this is the same God who can change all of us who are selfish, sinful creatures into children of God by his merciful choice. It's not what we deserve. It is by God's mercy. But still, the problem is not fully resolved, is it? The problem is not fully resolved because what about Esau? Did he have a choice to repent or was he damned from before his birth? Because if God foreknew and forechose to accept Jacob and reject Esau, doesn't that mean that Esau was denied a chance? And so here is where our, our hackles get, get up, right? Because we are wired for fairness. And if you don't believe that we're wired for fairness, just, just go play with some toddlers for a few minutes, okay? And then give a toy to one toddler and not to another and see how they react, okay? Then go to the toddler who you gave the toy to, take it from them and give it to the other one and see how that one reacts. It's not fair, right? You're, you're going to have a temper tantrum on your hands like that. It's hardwired into us a sense of fairness. And so our hackles get raised because that's embedded in us as we hear that God chose Jacob but rejected Esau. What about his choice? And so we struggle with this. It doesn't seem fair. Well, let's remember that Esau, though a great hunter, in his life he demonstrated that he cared so little for God or God's spiritual blessings that, get this, he comes in from the field, his stomach's growling, and so he, he smells what Jacob's cooking. Jacob's a great cook, I'm sure. He smells that bowl of stew. He wants it, and Jacob says, not so fast. Sell me your birthright. Esau knew exactly what that meant. His birthright was the spiritual blessing, the promise from Abraham to Isaac to his descendants. This wasn't a small thing. He was the firstborn. It belonged to him. All for a bowl of soup? He cared so little for the blessings of God that he says, yep, what good is it to me if I starve to death? As if he was going to starve to death, right? And he swaps his birthright for a bowl of soup. And he shows in this action that he knew of God, he knew who God was, he knew God's promises, but he traded all away for a bowl of soup. So let me ask you this. Did God, in his infinite wisdom, foreknow that Esau would make that choice? Did he foreknow? And the answer is yes. So then, based upon God's divine foreknowledge, could God act justly and fairly in for-choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau? Well, of course he could. And so he did. And God knew that the ultimate destiny of both lives, the decisions that would be made, one would be in, in re response of faith, because even though Jacob was a shyster, he responded to God in faith, whereas Esau responded in callousness and in rejection. And God foreknew this, and so he made his sovereign choice accordingly. 
Now, to help illustrate this, back in 2015, as I reminisce fondly now, Leanne and I, we boarded the LL Boeing 767 jet on a 12-hour flight from Toronto, Canada to Tel Aviv, Israel. Now, did you know that that aircraft had only one destination that was predetermined before it took off from the ground? One predetermined destination. So when we bought our tickets, we chose, that's our, our moment of decision, we chose that we are going to be on that flight, and then our names were written down on the, on the flight manifest, on the, on the list, and so once we chose, that's our second decision, to physically get on board that aircraft, our destination from that point onward was predetermined. You might even say that we were on a flight predestined for Zion. Think about that, you'll get it. Now, on that flight, after it took off, we still had some choices. I could decide whether I'd get up and go to the bathroom. I could decide whether to sleep or to talk or to read or to watch a movie. And, and on there, I could make other decisions if I would eat or not eat, what I would eat. We were even given a selection of food. It was amazing. We could choose what we were going to drink. I had all kinds of choices on that flight. But not one of those choices changed the destination. That was still predetermined. And we couldn't say while we were on that flight, well, you know what? I've changed my mind. I want this plane to go to New York City. Or I want this plane to go to Vancouver. Turn it around. That wasn't one of my options. It was set. The flight path was set. The destination was determined. Now, this is where the application applies. If you are in Christ then your destination is predetermined. You are predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ and enjoy the glory of God's presence forever. The moment you are in Christ, you are predestined for that outcome, for that destination. But even still, to us mere mortals with our limited ability to understand the mind and the ways of God, there's still something about this that we can't fully grasp or that still feels slightly unfair and while Paul has already anticipated that nagging feeling, and so he continues in verse 17 to give the next historical example of Pharaoh during the Exodus. Paul writes, For the scripture says, God said to Pharaoh, I raised you up, Pharaoh, for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now you remember the story of the Exodus. What happened? God sent Moses to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. But Pharaoh said, no, I'm not going to do it. So God proceeded to send plagues, one after the other, ten in total. After the first plague, what did Pharaoh do? It says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. After the second plague, what does it say? Pharaoh hardened his heart. After the third plague, Moses comes, let my people go. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Four, uh, three, four, and five. Each time the plague hits, Pharaoh says, yeah, I'm going to do it. But then he hardened his heart. Five times. Pharaoh hardened his own heart to the word of the Lord. Five times. And then, and only then, do we read, after the sixth plague, 
that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, the first five times, did God make the choice for Pharaoh to harden his own heart? Did God do that? No, he did not. Pharaoh made those five free will decisions all by himself. And I'm sure by that point, his heart was so hard, it was like granite. Because remember, it wasn't as though God was just, you know, mildly dealing with Egypt. Each and every time, there was devastating plagues rocking the land. This wasn't a matter of of just like, oh, I need to be convinced that you're real, God, or that you have real power. No, five times God had hit Egypt with serious plagues. Pharaoh was utterly convinced at this point, this God he's dealing with, this Yahweh, whoever he is, has real power, and he's rocking my land. So this is a matter of, of sheer rebellion at this point. Five times he hardens his own heart. Now, do you suppose that God knew that Pharaoh was not going to relent and repent no matter how many chances he gave him? Of course God knew that. God could have given Pharaoh an infinite number of chances to change his mind, to relent, repent, soften his heart, and listen to the word of God. But God knows the exact moment that this is no longer a possibility. Pharaoh continued to harden his own heart to the point that God says, Enough! I've given you enough opportunities, Pharaoh. Now I will come, and I will ensure your demise by hardening your heart, sealing the decision that you already made five times over. Remember, God didn't have to give Pharaoh five chances. In his mercy, he gave him five chances. He could have wiped him out after the first. Ha, I gave you a chance. You didn't take it. Five times in his mercy, God gave him the opportunity that by the sixth time and the plagues onward, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And there's a strong caution embedded within this for all people today who are persisting in a state of unbelief. To persist in a state of rejection of God's salvation through Jesus Christ is extremely dangerous. Every time you you hear the gospel message that Jesus died on the cross for you, for your sins, and you say, eh, that's not for me. And you resist and you you, you hold off. It's dangerous because you think it's, oh, I'll I'll decide later. Maybe on my deathbed, I'll, I'll get around to it. But every time you say no and you resist and reject the truth, your heart is getting harder. And it's getting harder. And only God knows the moment where it's so hard it can no longer turn back. For today is the day of salvation. Today. And God in his mercy is yet calling, come to me and be saved. Get on the one flight that has a predetermined destination of glory. And that is Jesus Christ. Get on the one flight. But God's window of mercy for us to exercise our free will to listen, to soften our hearts, to repent, to believe, that window of opportunity is not infinite, and one day it will close forever. Now at this point, if you still feel somewhat confused by all of this and are still wondering, where does God's sovereign choice of us and our free will choice of him, where does it begin and where does it end? Well, first, let me remind you that I promised you a little bit earlier that I was going to make this all as clear as mud. So you're welcome. And second, I'm going to share with you a series of illustrations that will maybe help illuminate this further. 
Charles Spurgeon, one of his favorite illustrations on the subject was this. He said, It's like this. Before you come to Christ, you look at a doorway, and above the door are engraved Jesus' words, Whosoever will may come. And so you say, Well, I'm a whosoever. I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. And so you walk through that door. And when you get through that door, you turn around and you look at the other side of it, and there above the the door are engraved the words, Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now third, I share with you the illustration of a scholar named R.B. Cooper, who once shared the following with his class. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are like two ropes going up through two holes in the ceiling, and there they disappear from our sight. Now to us, they appear to be two separate ropes. One, God's sovereignty, the other, man's responsibility. And there they disappear. However, unknown to us is that the two ropes continue to proceed upward and go up over a pulley above. And this is why if we wish to support ourselves and we grab only one of the ropes, we will come down and fall. And so therefore, with childlike faith, we must cling to both ropes. Trusting that in eternity to come, we will see clearly and understand that in the hand of God, the two ropes are actually one going up over the pulley out of sight. We must grab both ropes, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Now these tricky questions are indeed a great mystery. But today we can trust in the knowledge that it is not a mystery in the mind of God. Because remember, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And we can trust in his sovereign mercy that in the mind of God, he understands that each person is given an opportunity to come to salvation. Because remember, he is not willing that any should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance And so we trust that. We trust in God's sovereignty. We trust in his mercy. We trust in his word. And we can believe it today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is indeed a great mystery. And yet we trust that because your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our our thoughts, that though there is one, one layer to this that we can comprehend and grasp, there is another layer that, that goes beyond us, Father. And there's parts of this that we wrestle with as we struggle with questions of fairness. And yet, Lord, we know that you are perfectly fair. You are perfectly just. And that, Lord, all that we have received from you is only because of your great mercy towards us. And so, Father, today, from the challenges of your word, if there's anyone here today who has heard the gospel, who has heard the message, Lord, I pray that they would not harden themselves to it, that they would not resist, but that today they would yield humbly to recognize that, Jesus, you are the only Savior. You are the only way to the Father. You are the only way that our sins can be forgiven. And that each one of us today must decide, choose to follow you in repentance of our sins and in humble faith and obedience to you as our Savior and Lord. And so, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you give grace to one in such a situation, such a position, that today could be the day of salvation for them. I pray, Lord, for for all of us, Father, who are so blessed to be called your children, that we would never take this for granted a single day of our lives, 
but that we would give glory and honor to you, trusting you, our great and sovereign God, for you are worthy of our lives, you are worthy of our worship. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.